to this last uh, yeah, week of the Manage the Heart series. And if you've been with us all along, in week one we talked about the creation of the heart. How in Genesis, when God created Adam and Eve, he created them both body and soul. And when he knits us together in our mother's womb, he breathes life into us that we are both body and soul. In week two, we talked about devotion from the heart. What does God really want from us? He wants worship from the heart, not just external behavior and external motions, but a heart that is fully his. We talked about the problem of the heart. In week three, we talked about influences upon the heart. In week four, just the body and our social embeddedness and the spiritual battle that is around us. In week five, we talked about the primacy of the heart and that principle that what rules your heart will rule your life. That though the body influences us and society influences us and demons might influence and all these factors might influence that it's what rules our heart that will rule our life, whether that's the spirit of God or the sinful flesh, whether that's the word of the world or the word of Christ. In week six, we talked about the gift of a new heart and regeneration. And how those of us who have been put into Christ, united to Christ, he has given us a new heart. And the outer form is decaying, but the inner person is being renewed day by day. In week seven, we talked about expressions of a new heart in faith and repentance. That those don't come before we get a new heart, but God gives us a new heart that is able to believe. That is able to grieve sin. That is able to see Christ as beautiful and worthy of trust. And so faith and repentance. In week eight, we talked about transformation of a new heart through sanctification. And how just being born again wasn't the end of the line. But ever since, God has been conforming us to the image of his son. Through faith, through grace, as we feed upon the word, as we follow Jesus, as his spirit works in us, we're conformed to the image of Christ. Week nine, we talked about fruit of a new heart, the spiritual fruit of a new heart what the Spirit is actually producing in us and through us. And then we started looking at just implications of just a a biblical theology, a practical theology of the heart that we get from Scripture. We looked at life in the church and implications for singleness. We've talked about implications for marriage, implications for parenting. And then this week we're going to talk about implications for suffering. Because if this life really is all there is, then what hope is there in suffering? If we've, Paul even said it, that if we've hoped in Christ for this life only, then we're of all people the most to be pitied. And so there's something that scripture sort of wants us to see and understand about how God has composed us, inner person, outer person, what God is doing in us through the power of the gospel, through Christ, that is actually meant to change the way we think about suffering the way we endure suffering, the way we face suffering. And I can tell you this, coming out of the counseling world and the psychotherapy world, that every counseling system, every self-help system is trying to instill hope. It's built in to every counseling process. The big question is, okay, hope in what? And so that's what I want us to talk about today and how the gospel has something very distinctive to say to us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we jump in. Well, Father, we thank you for sending your son into this world to live, to die, to be raised according to your purpose 
in redeeming your people, in purchasing our forgiveness, in reconciling us to you, in providing a way for us to be saved, a way for us to get a new heart, a way for us to inherit eternal life. And now that changes everything. And so we pray that you would comfort us with the hope and the joy of the gospel. You would comfort us in the midst of suffering so that we wouldn't fear suffering, so that we wouldn't resent suffering, so we wouldn't merely just run from suffering, so that we would understand what you're doing through suffering and how hope and joy are born out of suffering for all who believe. And so we pray for your help in this in Christ's name. Amen. In Psychology Today released an article last year titled, Hope, a Foundation for All Psychotherapy That Works. And the article defined hope as believing tomorrow will be better. And that was it, whatever that means. Just believing tomorrow will be better. The Oxford Dictionary defines hope as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. And so hope gives people a reason to keep going, a certain thing that they can look forward to. I think we would all agree that whatever that certain thing is, is essential. Whatever that certain thing is will make the difference in life or death, in hope or despair, in joy or misery. What I found incredibly strange is that joy is almost never a goal of counseling or psychotherapy in the world. It's really never put forward as a goal. A vague sense of happiness, maybe? But even then, most counseling professionals do not try to promise any kind of happiness. That's kind of setting the bar too high, let alone joy. You'll hear words like, no, coping is the goal. Just achieving sort of self set goals, not joy. It's not what the world necessarily is trying to promise, a vague sense of happiness, perhaps. And the world certainly doesn't see the link between hope and joy, the way we should see the link between hope and joy. Listen to this from Proverbs 10.28. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The hope of the righteous brings joy. But the hope of the wicked, the expectation of the wicked, is going to die in the ground. We could say that hope is the seed that the Spirit uses to sprout joy in our hearts. And then joy is what he uses to actually reseed hope. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said to the Romans in Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope... Fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Hear the connection? The God of hope give you joy and peace, and then in doing so, the Holy Spirit cause you to abound again in hope. Hope feeding joy. Joy then receding hope. So what about Jack and Jill, married 11 years, regularly in conflict and disagreement, discouraged almost every day about the state of their relationship, just trying to survive, overwhelmed by all the marriage books they're being handed at church every single week, resentful of the constant exaltation of sort of good marriages, they don't want another conference, 
not sure what to do next. So many of their eggs got put in that marriage basket and it has not turned out to be what they thought. Or Sam, a 27-year-old single man just finishing up college after taking about eight years to finish, not sure about his future, often anxious, looking at pornography every few days to help him relax and vent frustration, dating on and off, unable to get close in relationships without kind of panicking, backing away, keeping everybody at arm's length, discouraged, embarrassed, ashamed, thinking I should have been further along, this is not what I thought life would be, what's the point? Or Mary, 61-year-old, married woman who's grown children, they've moved away, they rarely call, she feels discouraged, depressed about current life, the road ahead, because her husband still works 65, 70 hours a week, travels all the time, many of her friends have moved away or passed away, and so she had a vision for what life would be at this stage, life with grandchildren, with children, with marriage, with just all kinds of things that just aren't unfolding the way she expected. Much has been lost, prone to despair. And so what does the Lord promise to do with us, promise to do with them, with their bodies, with their souls, that is meant to move them toward real joy through hope and suffering? That's one of the questions I want us to think about today. And so turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter 1. Verses 3 through 9 is where we'll really camp out today and spend all of our time. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Verse 3, Scripture says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." So the Christians to whom Peter is writing, according to verse 1, are elect exiles. That's how they're seen. That's how we're to see ourselves. Chosen by God and now not at home in this world. In exile during our stay here. Followers of Jesus scattered in the world and in a world that hates Jesus. They are, verse 6, grieved by various trials. Their faith is being, verse 7, tested by fire. And I would argue nothing fancy, just the daily afflictions of following Jesus, the daily rejections of following Jesus, the mocking of following Jesus, the out of not fitting in the world following Jesus, the suffering of the body, the suffering in relationships. This is also the reality in which we live. There's no escaping it, that COVID-19 is a kind of suffering. 
quarantines, kind of suffering. Different kinds of social, political environment that we might be in is a kind of suffering. And too often as Christians, we're shocked by it, surprised by it, strangely unprepared for it. Whereas Peter doesn't want us to be unprepared for it. Peter's going to say throughout this whole book, this is normal for Christians. This is what you should expect to face. Persecution, affliction, hardship, trials of, as he'll say, various kinds. And so for Jack and Jill, almost every conversation about finances ends in Jill feeling belittled and Jack feeling disrespected. And they don't see how the Lord is actually trying to give them hope. Trying to wean them off false hopes. Onto good hopes. So only a growing faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ can actually help them see the point of their particular suffering. Because we've all been appointed, not just for suffering in general, but for particular suffering. Tailor-made suffering. Suffering for you. That God's going to use for your good and his glory. No escaping it. So how can they understand it and even more rejoice in it? Because rejoicing in the middle of affliction seems out of touch with reality, perhaps even a bizarre. We're not saying there isn't a time for lament or a time for grief or a time for mourning. There is. We can be honest about all of that and rejoice. We can face trials of various kinds and feel the weight of it in a very honest way and have hope. That's part of the mystery of the gospel is how those things come together in one package. That Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and I think we would have been shocked about how happy he was all the time. How perfectly joyful he was. How perfectly hopeful he was. So through the Apostle Peter here, God's going to tell us to rejoice when grieved by various trials. And so how can that be for Mary, who feels alone, who's Prime years on earth have apparently passed, who feels aimless in life, who's resentful of her husband and ashamed of being resentful of her husband. And apparently she can, according to Peter, verse 8, rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Verse 8. And without the trials of her life actually changing, without the circumstances actually getting better, how's that possible? I think the answer is a living hope in what the second coming of Christ is going to bring. A living hope in what God has promised will certainly come about with both our bodies and our souls. This is why the Apostle Peter is going to say these things. There's an inheritance that's guarded for her and all of us while she's guarded by God for it. Inheritance guarded for us as God guards us for it. And so we'll look at seven themes, if you will, from this passage. That's what we'll focus on as just kind of the implications of a biblical theology of the heart in the midst of suffering. Starting with there, point one, the basis for our hope being, verse three, born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if you've been born again through Jesus Christ, then a living hope belongs to you. It's not an empty hope, not a dead hope. It's a living hope. 
Our first birth is not a basis for hope. This is something we can say to every person in the world when we're sharing the gospel with them. That just being born is not a basis for hope, but despair. Just existing is not a basis for hope, but for despair. But when the Spirit unites us to Christ, gives us new hearts, fills us with his power, then we immediately receive this living hope. And the reason we do is because Jesus lives. Because he was raised from the dead and he is alive. That is why hope in us is alive. This comes about because of God's, notice, great mercy. In other words, he chose to withhold from us the due consequences of our sin by pouring it upon his son instead. That mercy is the withdrawing of circumstances we deserve. Grace is the giving of grace, favor circumstances that we don't deserve. So it's through his grace and through his mercy that we're born again. We were buried with Christ. We were raised with Christ. His death purchased our forgiveness. He reconciled us to God. And what that means now is we live and we die with hope or a certain expectation that God will raise us, that God will glorify us, that God will bring us to his presence forever. This is the basis, the foundation of our hope. And so we now live in a new family and a new, with a new father. And so, as we see in the next verse, a new inheritance. And the irony of this inheritance is you receive it when you die, not when your parents die. Every other inheritance you receive when your parents die, not this one. This is the inheritance you receive when you die. And to think about that, that many of us, we don't really meditate on those truths that when you die, you will come into an inheritance that is unfathomable. When you die, you'll depart to go be somewhere that is immeasurably beautiful, with a person that is immeasurably lovely, that everything in your entire existence will get infinitely better because you're gonna be raised. So many of us, we don't meditate on those truths, let alone connect them to our daily lives. And instead, we'll try to base our hope on everything else. We'll try to base our hope on career, base our hope on health, base our hope on relationships, base our hope on marriage or children or singleness or fill in the blank. Which is why we are regularly disappointed, regularly frustrated, regularly discouraged. It's God exposing sort of the futility of that thing that we've put our hope in that was never meant to last. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. What a statement. I want you to know, brothers, that of the affliction that we endured in Asia, it was so bad, we thought this is it, we're dying. We despaired of life itself. But it wasn't fruitless, it wasn't in vain. It was so that God could teach us 
not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And think about how many of us spend most of our energy, most of our lives avoiding those very kinds of moments. Or if we get in them, getting out of those very kinds of moments. The very moments that God might design to teach us not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. How many of us just want COVID to be over? Have we really asked ourselves why? What do we, we think it will be better? What makes us think that? What makes us think that whatever particular suffering, whatever affliction, whatever difficulties that God has put in our world, it's to teach us to not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And so that's where a Christian can be distinctively equipped in how we live in this kind of day, how we live under these kinds of circumstances, how we live sort of in a world that is disoriented because of all the things that are going on. That we can say, okay, this is God teaching us not to rely on ourselves, but on him who raises the dead. The Lord has a way of making sure each and every one of us comes at some point to despair of life itself. To tell ourselves, what is the point? We think that's a personal crisis. God thinks that's progress. That that's a good question to ask. What is the point? What are we living for? What are we hoping in? And this is a gift so that we would learn, number one, the basis for our hope is being born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that that would become reflexive in our response. Affliction comes, but yet our hope, the basis for it is that we're born again through the resurrection of Jesus. And number two, that we would learn a new object of our hope, which brings us to the next point. The object of our hope is, verse four, an inheritance. The gospel promises an inheritance. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. There's the object of our hope that is, number one, imperishable, which means lasting, eternal. It's immune to death. Undefiled means pure, clean, unblemished, immune to corruption. Unfading, which means sustained and renewable, reliable, immune to decay. So I love phrases like that we have today, like renewable energy. Recycling in order to renew, in order to, when really that's all just stopgap stuff. It's just temporary. It will all fade, but not your inheritance in heaven. That's unfading. It's immune to decay. Kept in heaven, meaning reserved, guarded, safe, immune to theft or loss. That's why Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves things on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But put your treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. That's what Peter's saying. It's really important. The reason we spend so much time feeling anxious, so much time feeling joylessness, arises from our many hopes in that which perishes. 
the hopes we put in that which is defiled, that which fades away, that which can be taken away. Because if you really think about it, everything you possess in this present life will be lost at some point. It will fade. It will decay. It will be defiled. It will be taken away. That it will be lost. And before it is lost, it will be defiled or corrupted in some fashion. And while being defiled and corrupted, it will also slowly fade away and decay. And so the individuals in each of the sort of case studies that I mentioned are each experiencing that reality. These things that I really thought would last aren't lasting. These things that I thought would be pure aren't very pure. These things I thought wouldn't decay, they're decaying. These things I thought would deliver aren't delivering. And it doesn't make them bad things. That your spouse is a gift, your children are a gift, your body is a gift, your job is a gift, money's a gift. They're all gifts, they're just not gods. They're not unfading. They're not meant to build your hope upon. And we never really know that we have until it's touched, until it's taken. So Sam, the young man uncertain about his life, running to pornography every day, thinks it will last, but the pleasure perishes. The indulgence defiles. The glamour of the material fades away. Sam really expected, okay, he'd be at a different place in his life, and he's failed. I thought it'd be further along in career, and it hasn't happened. And so now he just can't imagine a fruitful way forward. What's the point? Where's the hope? And so we can have empathy for Sam. We can have compassion for Sam. But we can also sit with Sam and encourage him and say, praise God, he's bringing you to the end of that. So that you would see that was never meant to be where your hope is. So that your hope would be put in a different object that Jack and Jill carried a particular dream for marriage into their marriage and now they're grieving the loss of it. We talked about it last week. Parents, we can take a particular dream of parenting and children into parenting and then when it doesn't come about, we think, okay, what happened? What's wrong? And sometimes God goes, nothing. This is what life in a fallen body, in a fallen world as a sinner relating to other sinners trying to be faithful to God looks like feels like. That's why Peter's writing this. That's why he's going to say in 1 Peter, don't be perplexed. Don't be confused. Don't be surprised. Your brothers and sisters throughout the whole world are suffering in the same ways. He's going to say, to this you have been called. He says, for Christ has also suffered according to the flesh and has given us an example so that we would follow in his footsteps. 1 Peter 2. The Lord uses suffering to expose where our lowercase d desires have become capital D desires. And where those capital D desires have begun capital H hopes. Just an illustration, imagine your hope was Arkansas would win the national championship in football this year. And by hope, I mean you put everything in it. You bought the season tickets, you bought the, you know, all the gear for tailgating, that got canceled. You invested your whole life, your whole world, all your emotion, all your energy. You got a brand new, you know, 2,000-inch TV. Covers the entire wall of your house. Invested everything. And as each passing week goes, you realize this dream is down in flames. 
So that's just sort of a crude illustration, but apply that to every other thing in life. We can put our hope in. We can bank on. We can rely on. We can think. And then that rug gets pulled out. Food and drink. Isn't it interesting that one of the symptoms of COVID is you lose your taste? And for how many of us go, please, Lord, no. Have you had that prayer yet? Lord, okay, even if I get COVID, take away anything. Just not my taste for food. Not my taste for drink. Right? It's humbling, isn't it? When you start thinking about the stuff that we really derive our sense of joy from. Our sense of hope from. The things we look forward to. How often we say, you know what, it's a hard day, but you know what, we're going out to a nice dinner tonight. Well, what if there isn't that? You know, it's been a hard day, but we've, we're going you know, out this weekend on vacation. Well, what if that's taken away? How, how often have you heard, well, yeah, that's going wrong, but at least you have your health. Well, what if God takes your health? Or in the case of Job, what if he takes everything? Or Paul takes everything. Peter, by the end, takes everything. And the good news of the gospel is you can still rejoice. The good news of the gospel is there's still so much hope because your object of hope hasn't moved. Relational escape, sexual pleasure, health and physical vitality, medical treatment. I mean, just how much hope goes into a vaccine? Right, for how many of us, oh, just wait, this vaccine's coming out. Then everything will go back to normal. As if that's the point of life, is not dying or not getting sick, or getting back to what we thought it ought to be. That a believer is uniquely equipped to say, this is so good for us. It's just so good for us to teach us to not rely on ourselves, but on him who raises us from the dead. All these objects of desire can be really nice. They can be good gifts from God, but not as ends unto themselves. Not as the ultimate means by which we achieve joy and satisfaction. In other words, they have value, but as signs of glory, not the glory. As signs pointing to our true hope, not the objects of our hope. We're to hope in what they point to. And so suffering, by God's grace, reorients our hope in order to make our hope secure. This is God's love for us. It's like if you go outside one day and your, your, your kids have built a fort and you look at it and it's from old sort of plywood and old rotten wood from fencing and they've put it together and each time the wind shifts you see it rock and it's about 30 feet in the air and they're all getting their stuff out and they're about to all climb up together to go to the top to hang out. What does love as a parent mean in that moment? And what if you walk over to that thing they built, they're about to climb up to the top and like camp out on it, and you walk over and just touch it and the whole thing crashes over. Is that love or hate? Is that mercy or is that judgment? I would argue it's love, it's mercy, it's wisdom. Because we think this thing's gonna really work the way we've built our life up. The stuff we're trying to make is the load-bearing walls of our world. The thing we're going to try to move all our stuff, 
get it to the top and just hang out there and God's like, that's going to crash down. How about if I crash it down before you build your life on it? Before it gets too costly. So he would actually make our hope secure, which brings us to the third point. The security of our hope is, verse 5, God's power. The inheritance promised to us is not earned but received. The gospel doesn't say, okay, if you claw your way home, God will take you in. That's actually a hopeless idea. The security of our hope is the power of God. That our faith is guarded by God. Over and over, God says to us, Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, I am with you. Hebrews 13, I will never leave you or forsake you. John 6.37, all the Father gives to me, I don't lose any. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power at work in us, Ephesians 1.19. Not only is your inheritance secure, but you are secure. Not only is it guarded, but you're being guarded, prepared for it. Your soul is secure. This is important when trials come, when afflictions come, when we think, okay, all is lost. We might say that. Well, all isn't lost because you're not lost. You're not going to be lost. The most important part of you, which isn't your stuff, God's going to secure it, has secured it, will guard it, continues to guard it. So the best way to lose joy in a created thing is to cling to it as if your life depends on it. So I love Ecclesiastes 5 when Solomon says, you know, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. He who loves abundance will not be satisfied with increase. This too is vanity. In other words, the best way to lose your joy in a created thing is to base your life on it. It's the best way to suck the life out of it, the joy out of it. And so for the brother or sister who's abusing alcohol, are we really enjoying alcohol? Or has all the joy of it been taken away? Because it rules us. We need to unpack the implications of God's promise to protect us, even to protect our faith by his power. Whereas the prize is across the finish line, and he promises to get us across the finish line. It's why if you're running a marathon, and you turn the corner, and they just put a brand new Starbucks in, you don't go, oh, wow, they've got new Christmas drinks, and jump in. Right? You're running a marathon. That's not going to help you finish. Now, I'm not dissing Starbucks or good coffee. I'm just saying sometimes we'll approach life like it's not, like the prize isn't across the finish line. But we're somehow looking for it before then. But Peter's saying, no, it's across the finish line, and he promises to get you across. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forever, Psalms. And his right hand will make sure you get to his right hand. We must learn to believe it fully in the details of our lives, that your faith is guarded by him. You're guarded by him. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power holding you now. And so suffering by God's grace is the furnace within which the Lord teaches us what is true and where his power really resides. Because you know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they come out from that furnace, Is their confidence in God less or more? Who guarded them through that furnace, protected them through that trial? 
Well, how much more when we emerge from this life, get across the finish line, is, are we going to see God sustained us? He guarded us. Any questions, thoughts, comments before we get to kind of the mechanism of our hope? Anything about what we've said so far? Yeah, the question is, you know, sometimes we don't know what our hope is in until God touches it, takes it away, threatens it, until it decays. What are ways that we can proactively, preemptively be aware of some of those things? Yeah, great question. I think, I think just praying for God to give that kind of wisdom, that kind of insight. I think being humble in response to the feedback and correction of others, though a lot of times we don't see it, other people may see it. And so I think it's, praying that we would be a, a body of believers that are humble and receptive to feedback, but also willing to give feedback to others. Again, for the same reasons God does, because we love others. We, we see hope being placed in something. We're like, okay, that's gonna disappoint you. That's gonna discourage you. That's gonna ultimately fail. And we lovingly and gently point it out. Or if we're, so I love, you know, and David prayed in Psalm 141, let the righteous strike me, it is a kindness. Let him reprove me, it's oil upon my head. Let not my head refuse it. And so there's a prayer we have to have. Okay, Lord, I pray that I would be receptive to the feedback of other people who see me putting hopes in the wrong things. Um, and then I think just praying, yeah, that God would help us to see, that the Spirit would give us discernment. I think that's some of what, I think there's a, there's a conviction of the Spirit that's at work. It's learning to listen to him. I think many of us, when things come crashing down, we can look back and see the Spirit warned us. And we thought, nah, I'll give it a shot. I'll just try it anyway. And then it comes up empty. It comes up discouraging and futile. And then we go, okay, I've learned something there. But then often it's in the furnace of suffering. That's somewhat Peter's getting at. That's what we'll even get back to next is how God actually refines our faith. And the mechanism of our hope, that fourth point, is faith. The means by which we trust and enjoy the power of God is faith. Our faith does not make God's power more or less effective, as if God's waiting around for us, for him to be powerful. But it does make it more or less known to us, experienced by us in a personal way. So our faith doesn't change God's power. Our faith isn't going to change him protecting us. But it will affect to the degree to which we experience it, rely on it, know it. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There it is, Hebrews 11.1, 1, that faith is the mechanism of things that, that assures us of that which we've hoped for. We're meant to encourage one another's faith that's why it's ridiculous to go, okay, I just, I'm going to name it and claim it, this Ferrari over here, because of my great faith. I'm going to name and claim health or house, just the prosperity gospel. But you go, okay, well, then that's what you're hoping in. And your faith is giving you the assurance of that thing that you've hoped for, but that's a false faith because God didn't promise that. It's not what God told you to put your hope in. 
Those are things God specifically tells you not to put your hope in. So the very faith you're articulating is a hollow, empty faith. But rather, faith is the assurance of things hoped for that God promises will come about. The conviction of things not seen that God says are there. We're meant to encourage one another's faith. That's one of the roles of members of the church, right? That's what we're here to do for one another is to stir up faith, to stir up hope in what God has promised, not hope in what he hasn't promised. As soon as you're ministering to that brother or sister and they say, you know what, at least there's a vaccine coming out. I'm sure 2021 will be better than 2020. I'm sure you can just say, you know, maybe not. Love you and doubtful. Or maybe that part will be better and something else will be worse. But Paul assures Timothy, he says, I assure you that in the last days, men will grow from bad to worse. Things will get harder, not easier. Because you read the book of Revelation, right? And there's this glorious conclusion that we're moving to in a new city, new heavens and a new earth. But then a lot of stuff in between that's not so pretty. A lot of stuff that's going to come crumbling down. So when we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, what else are we saying? All that global catastrophe, all that melting of the universe, all that wrath and judgment, Lord, bring it because we know you're coming with it. You're coming behind it. There's just that part of us that thinks, okay, we can somehow just get there easily. Where we can live basically comfortable lives, basically painless lives. And how many of us is our prayer, Lord, just take me in my sleep. Just I'm laying there, I just hit sort of a nice dream. And then the Lord just withholds his spirit and takes life away from me. And I just sort of float up and then wake up and there I am in glory. Right, we'll, we'll think that's, okay, that's how I want to go. And again, it makes sense. It'd be a great way to go. Just God didn't promise it. Rather, we are to be guarded through faith, verse five. Genuineness of your faith, verse seven. You believe in him, verse eight. Outcome of your faith, verse nine. So we have to get the sense here that Peter's not talking about something that's frail and flimsy, like, oh, just have more faith. But this is a massive theme, a centerpiece in the Christian life, a way of relating to God, a way of living life that is God-word, that is God-trusting, that is God-oriented, that is God-reliant, that is God-focused, that is Christ-fixated, and that faith is something that's deep, substantial, growing, and we'll see something that God cares deeply about the refining of our faith. See, it's snowing, by the way. The thing they said wasn't gonna happen until noon. God said, I'll make it happen now. See, he saw, he's in control. I noticed driving in that they hadn't treated any roads. I'm like, it's so good to be back in the south. (laughs) Yeah, let it snow a few inches and we'll figure it out. It'll be a fun drive home. Timeline of our hope. A salvation ready to be revealed. Hope, by definition, is forward-looking, but we often forget it. We gravitate to desires for immediate gratification. 
hope for immediate relief. But look at verse 5. Our salvation is ready to be revealed. Just as Jesus, he promised, he's at the door, ready to enter. It's always close, but it's not here yet. It's ready to be revealed. But that might mean 50 years from now. According to verse 9, salvation of our souls is an outcome of our faith. Something that's coming. That is something future, something resting in the hands of the Lord and his timing. And so what suffering does is it constantly tempts us to fixate on present circumstances. To to fix it now. To make it better now. But faith is long-suffering. Faith endures persecution. Faith realizes, okay, it's a salvation ready to be revealed. It's an outcome of our faith. So think about how much time do you spend praying that God would make you good at waiting? That's one thing I realize, I'm terrible at waiting. I was in Coles yesterday taking some stuff back and the line was like to Fort Smith. You're just standing, I brought all these boxes in. They were having, I'm like, I'm not taking these back out of the car. I think, I guess I'll wait. And it's just, it took forever. It was like 15 minutes. You know, I mean, you just think, you're just life, you're just, it's just ticking away one moment at a time. So just how prone, just impatience, want it now, want it fixed. Well, how much more than when there's suffering, when there's pain, where there's trials, there's affliction, it's just, I just want it to go away. It's where God is teaching us, he's training us, don't live under circumstances, don't fixate on circumstances. Look to a salvation that's ready to be revealed. Look at me and what's coming. We have to pray for that. We have to exert energy for that. The art of waiting. It's perhaps one of the most difficult aspects of trusting God when there's trials. Is being still. I mean, he says those things, right? Be still and know that I am God. When Egypt comes out to the Red Sea and Israel's trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, he just says, stand back. I will deliver you while you keep silent. Just watch. Be still. But then you notice how he didn't do it right away. He made them spend the night in the camp with the the pillar of fire between them and the Egyptians and the Red Sea on the other side. Could he not have just driven the Red Sea back right away? He's going to say, no, let's wait a day. You go to bed 60 yards from the Egyptians and just know I'm between you. And I'm going to deliver you. And you be quiet. Like just what a maturation, as we'll get to, of our faith, of our hope. He says, no, I will make a table for you in the presence of your enemies. And your cup will overflow all at once. It's funny, we can read those kind of things like Psalm 23, even memorize it and kind of miss the implications of what he's saying. That he might take you and stick you right in the middle of your enemies. People who want you dead and say, now eat your soup and be still and know that I'm God, that I guard you, protect you. That is part of how he matures our hope, next point, through trials. Too often we hope in the absence of trials, when the Lord actually intends to use trials to teach us hope. We rejoice in our sufferings, Romans 5, 3. What a statement. We rejoice 
in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So how many of you want to learn true hope? Put up your hand. Great. How many of you want to learn real character, like godly character? Yeah, me too. How many of you want to learn endurance? Yeah. Then rejoice in suffering, is what he's saying. James 1, count it all joy when you face trials of any kind, knowing that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance has to finish its work in you so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And when God says, who here wants to be mature and complete, not lacking anything, we all go, oh, me, me. And he goes, well, then count it all joy when you face trials of any kind, knowing this is how I do it. This is how I mature faith. This is how I mature hope. If you were to be yeah, out in the hills at some point and somehow you find a 50-ton piece of gold ore, which basically looks like a big, massive rock, then you're probably not going to have any problem like having it smashed to pieces, put on a conveyor belt, pounded to dust, and then thrown into a furnace to be refined, right? If you knew what was going to come out on the other side was about $3 million of gold. But yet when you see gold ore, when it's taken out of the ground, it doesn't look like gold. It looks like rock. You think, okay, this, a lot of work needs to be done to purify this. And then the process is pretty brutal of crushing those rocks, of pounding it to dust, of putting it into a furnace, raising it to great temperatures so that all the impurities will raise, come to the surface and be sloughed away. And then the furnace gets heated even hotter because more impurities separate at higher temperatures, slough those away. And how hot you raise the temperature just depends on how pure do you want the gold. How many of the impurities do you want taken away? Well, God's a master smelter of faith. He's a master refiner of hope. There's no teacher like him. No transformer like him. And so he knows precisely what he's doing. And to God, see there, 1 Peter 1, our faith is more precious than what? More precious than gold. It should be precious to us. More precious than gold to us. And he's willing to use all kinds of circumstances, like a furnace, to raise the temperature of our lives so that all that dross, all that impurity will start to separate from our hearts and be sloughed away. And so marriage for Jack and Jill is not a punishment, not a cruel joke, but a very careful, strategic, necessary means by which he's maturing their hope, purifying their faith, conforming them to the image of Christ. As iron is sharpening iron, so one will sharpen another. Life disappointment for Sam, areas of personal failure, spiritual pruning, So the basis for his hope is continually being shifted back and located upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what God's doing. That all these disappointments that are disappointments are important to the refining of your faith. All these things you hoped in that are failing is gonna help you not rely on those things but rely on God who raises the dead. And produces in us The next point, the expression of our hope, which is rejoicing. 
that gospel-rooted hope produces hope-rooted joy. And so one of the great evidences that our hopes are in Christ is that we abound in joy, that we abound in rejoicing. That is a present joy in what is promised later, an immediate celebration in what is certain to come. So if you've ever seen anybody win a million dollars on a game show or like $50 million on a lottery and you watch them celebrate, you're watching them celebrate hope. The joy is the product of hope. They haven't received a penny. They're not gonna receive a penny for weeks. That money's not in their hands. It's promised. And they believe in it. And they're hoping in it. And what you're seeing is the joy that is the product of that hope, even though it's the wrong kind of joy. Well, that, though, is empty, fleeting, and frail compared to what Peter's talking about. And how when we look to the inheritance that's coming, when we look to the glory that is coming, when we look at the salvation that is to be revealed, it is to produce now an immediate celebration in knowing what's coming. The heavenly father will be your father forever. The joys of his presence will be your presence forever. The new heavens and the new earth will be yours to explore and delight in and feast upon forever. Seeing and hearing Jesus will go on forever. The father will give you the kingdom. Your body will be glorified forever. Your relationships will be perfect and blissful forever. There'll be no more tears. No more pain, no more loss, no more fatigue or hunger or thirst or discomfort, only pleasure, only contentment, only the presence of God and the saints forever. So what he's saying is in those future realities, we rejoice now. In what is certain to come, we feel joy now. The Spirit helps us see, sense, comprehend all that God is leading this to and produces now the fruit of the Spirit, which is joy. In this you rejoice, verse six. In other words, we rejoice in the inheritance reserved for us in verse four. In the salvation to be revealed in the last time, verse five. In this you rejoice. And so joy is the heartfelt experience. Rejoice is the expression. Joy is that sort of fire of gladness in God. It sort of burns in the soul, sensed in the soul. Rejoice is sort of the venting of that gladness, the expression of that gladness. Joy is the essence of unshakable satisfaction in Christ. Rejoice is the overflow of that satisfaction. It's the expression that comes out. This could be why it is, notice his words, inexpressible. Because there's just not the right quality or quantity of words to fully capture it. Too great, too beautiful, too magnificent. It's inexpressible. It's also what we're meant to be ready. Even Peter says, always be ready to give a reason to anyone who asks you for the hope that you have. There's just to be real rejoicing, real hope, and it's meant to be mystifying to the world. That's part of the inexpressible. It doesn't make sense that in affliction we should rejoice, that in suffering we have hope. It's part of the power of the gospel, the power of the spirit at work in us. This joy is, notice the other phrase, filled with glory, because it's filled with thoughts of glory. 
emotions that arise from glory, affections that arise in response to knowing the person who is himself glory. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Again, what a statement. The sufferings of this present time, they're not worthy to be compared to the glory that is gonna be revealed in us, to what God is producing in us through that suffering, to what God is driving us to through that suffering, to what God is gonna produce in a new heavens and a new earth to replace that suffering. It's gonna be so much greater, so much better. So the word of God comes to us in suffering to keep the glory that is to be revealed right there in the middle of our minds, right before us. Because when suffering comes, right, that affliction just takes center stage. The pain just tends to dominate our view. What the word of God is doing is constantly filtering, reevaluating, reinterpreting that to show us the glory that is behind it. The glory that God is taking us to. So we realize, okay, that suffering is not worth comparing. And that produces joy. Real hope producing real joy. Questions, comments, thoughts before we wrap up? Dan. <laughs> Say that God's not an equal opportunity employer. In what way do you mean? Yeah. It's interesting that, yeah, so just Dan's point is that we tend to look at others and think, oh, their lives are easy, comfortable, together, and then bemoan and have self-pity and resent and think, okay, God, this isn't fair. Why is my life hard? There's easy. And in one way, there's, as believers, we look out into the world, Psalm 73 is about that. How just look at the, the proud, the powerful, the evil. They're just not suffering the way I'm suffering. He's like, I'm Chastened every morning is Asaph's observation. Like I wandered two degrees from God's path and he chastens me. Seems like the wicked get to do whatever they want. So there's that side, but then also even within the church, there's just that reality, okay, I'm suffering, I'm in pain, I have a worse lot. And, and yeah, and so we always have to be reminded that, and even Peter does, that hey, no, brothers and sisters, that Christians throughout the world are suffering the way you're suffering, number one. Number two, that every kind of suffering, yeah, it's tailor-made for each of us. It'll never look exactly the same. And that should comfort us, that he knows what each of his children need at every moment in time. The perfect kind of affliction and then the strength and power that he's going to give for that to bear fruit. Thirdly, you know, if you remember the story of the disciples when they're in Acts, they're dragged before the Sanhedrin early in the book of Acts, and they're beaten for sharing the gospel. And you remember it says, and they went out, what? Rejoicing. Why? Because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name. I think that changes a lot when we realize suffering is a privilege that God brings to his children that is part of being worthy of his name, counted worthy to follow in Jesus' steps. 
Paul felt you know, that he would be counted worthy to fill up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions, meaning some of the afflictions that remained for his body on earth to endure. And so even to see, okay, the attitude of these New Testament saints that God was teaching them is the reality that, okay, this is part of the privilege of being called by his name, part of the mark that we belong to him. I think a fourth thing to remember is that in God's hands, suffering is always constructive, always. It will always be for our good. It will always lead to sanctification. It will always grow our faith. And therefore, if we feel like we're suffering a good bit and we look at another believer and they're not, how should we feel about that? Resentful or privileged? Oh, wow, I, man, I wish they could enjoy what I get to enjoy. I wish that, yeah, maybe, and maybe they are, we don't know. That would be a fifth thing I would say, is we really don't know. We don't know what's going on in their world. We don't know what's happening inside. We don't know what was part of their past. We don't know what's part of their future. You know, when the Apostle Paul is converted and on the road to Damascus, and he's taken to Damascus and in a house blinded, and God, the Spirit, comes to Ananias and says, I want you to go to this house, and there's someone there named Saul of Tarsus. Lay your hands on him. And Ananias is like, oh, I know who you mean. And he was coming here with letters to throw a bunch, to persecute us, throw a bunch of us in prison. And God's going to say, well, he's my chosen instrument. And what he says is, I have already shown him how much he must suffer for my name. Like, that's the first thing he says about him. <laughs> No, he's mine, and I've actually already shown him how much he will suffer for my name. You think he's going to bring suffering or that he's brought suffering? No, he's actually going to suffer. And, and it's not disparaging. It's, no, he's my chosen instrument, and he's going to suffer a lot. And so now you just watch the, the life of Paul and how he responds to affliction. You don't see him looking around at other Christians going, man, they've got it great, I've got it bad. He's going to say things like, I don't consider the sufferings of this life worthy to be compared to the glory that's being revealed. Or things like, but this was to teach us not to rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. So behind it all, it's just this, again, this faith that trust, okay, in the hands of God, all affliction, all suffering for his children is always constructive, always redemptive, always transforming, always worthwhile, always going somewhere good. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would impress your words upon our hearts. You would help us to see what Peter is seeing, what Peter is describing, so that we would rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. It's in Christ's name we pray.